Hello and welcome to Counterculture. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, over the past four months in this national crisis, which started off with COVID, of course, and then has sort of gone on to be a cultural onslaught, which started with the Black Lives Matter protests, what have we heard from the church? Well, most people during this time would maybe remember two things. During COVID, it was that the churches were not open. And during the Black Lives Matter, that the Archbishop of Canterbury wanted to revise the statues in Canterbury Cathedral. So is that the extent of the church's response to this extraordinary situation we find ourselves in? What does it actually mean? Does it mean that the church is actually irrelevant now? What church, in fact, are we talking about? Are we just talking about the Church of England? Now, with me to discuss this today, I'm very pleased that we have Ben Lochnane, who is a theologian as well as a communications consultant, Mark Sidwell, who is the deputy editor of Smith Magazine and also author of the NCF book, The Long March, which you might be aware of, and of course, Rafe Hadelmanku, who is an historian commentator from the New Culture Forum. Um, thanks for coming and talking about this. Um, can I start by asking you, uh, has the church made itself irrelevant, Mark, recently? I am just astonished by the church's behaviour in this. And the thing that I think that terrifies me the most is that I think they think that they've done rather well. They seem quite pleased with themselves. And I was already a little distressed with the state of the church. I knew it was very politicised. You know, I'm, a, I'm an Anglican myself. I go to an Anglo-Catholic church. But the church hierarchy I didn't, I didn't think very much of. But I had no idea that they would willingly just step aside in the middle of the greatest national crisis since the Second World War and not become part of the story, closing down the churches like they did, which they didn't have to do in the way that they did. They, they banned clergy from going in on their own to pray in the churches. They banned people from going in on their own to sit in churches outside services. The government didn't make them do that. And it just cut off the church as part of what could serve people in a complete spiritual and moral and physical crisis. And I think that was just an appalling decision that really ruled themselves out as the centre of the national life in the way that the, the national church is supposed to be. You, you actually, I remember, told us a couple of weeks ago, you popped into Westminster Abbey, which is not very far from where we're filming. And there was just, you were the only one in there, weren't you? Uh, when I'm in London, you know, and I went into Westminster Abbey just after, much later in the crisis, when they did eventually allow people in for private prayer. And yeah. yes, they were all set up for queues and queues of people to come in, and I was literally the only person in there praying. And that, but the same is true. I also live in rural Suffolk, and in my little village, they open the church now for private prayer, and I go in and I sit there, and um, I'm, the, I'm the only person there as well. And there, there's something there about the general state of the church and the state of church attendance as well, but it is a sign of how people do feel that, that it's, not, it's not serving them, perhaps. Do you, uh, Ray, do, you, do you know what was behind the decision? Was it just purely about social distancing gone crazy? What? Well, I think what we're seeing now, really, is a, an increasing alienation in, in, the, in the church, akin to what we're seeing in other institutions. And it is this disconnect between the leadership 
and the laity and the leadership really are traditional men who are out of step and out of kilter and are trying their best to do what they think is right yes. without any actual logic behind their decisions and policies and they're actually acting on the spur of the moment based upon knee-jerk reactions based upon small small elite coteries of men and getting together to decide how they're going to act without any consultation of the population who, who, who are who are of the faith and that and so what you're seeing really is this attempt by the church to be seen to be on page to be woke yeah. to be to be relevant whereas that's not actually what's being demanded by the laity and so you've really got this three-tiered structure to the uh, church at the moment where you've got this this um this disconnected leadership who are basically privately educated members of the elite not dissimilar to you know david cameron's background or public school boys then you have this left-leaning clergy and you have the laity who are on the right and those are the people who, who, are, who would, you would think would be the, the flock that they want to actually tend to, but they're trying to appeal to a population who aren't interested, and they're alienating their own population by doing so, and so they're losing, they're going to hemorrhage more and more numbers yes. without gaining any new recruits by, by following these silly policies, be it COVID or be it Black Lives Matter. Yeah, well, you say, you say they're trying to appeal to the population. I'm not convinced they are anymore. I think you're right about well, they think the, they the, these, narrow, these narrow elite interests. I think the people they're trying to appeal to are their own class, are the they see themselves really as sort of management consultant types who are part of this managerial class, this political class, and they don't really see themselves as churchmen with a distinctive mission. And so they're trying to talk to the other people in government and important powerful positions and say, look, we know the opinions we're supposed to have. We're woke, we're diverse, you know, we're going to go really hard on our targets on climate change and carbon emissions, but they're not interested in the other stuff. You know, I mean, the Brexit uh, divide is a very striking way of thinking about this, okay? 75% mm. of people who identify as Anglicans voted for Brexit. 75? 75 overall. Right. And obviously that's an older demographic in general, yeah. but even among the younger demographics, significantly more self-identified Anglicans voted for Brexit than didn't. It was like half of them, as opposed to being about a third in the normal population at that age, below 50, 40. Among the bishops of the Church of England, of which there's about 100, you know, across all of them, not just the big three. One came out in favour of Brexit. Really? That tells you everything you need to know about how distant they are from the people who actually want to go to their churches. That's right. That, that's the disconnect, and that's what you're actually seeing right now. Is you have, I mean, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, who has spoken out against universal credit, who's spoken out against capitalism, who's pro-open borders, who's spoken out against Brexit, and we know full well that that is not the, the belief and view of the majority of people who, who attend church on, on all of these policies. Now, no one's saying that the, the church shouldn't have positions. The church should stand for an end to exploitation, should stand for an end to injustice, but that doesn't mean adopting partisan policies or adopting policies of a political party or indeed of a, of a movement like Black Lives Matter, and that's what we're seeing. Ben, we, we, this was all churches that were closed, wasn't it, in, in Britain? But I mean, there is a difference, is there not, obviously, between... We're, we're talking about the Church of England, but the Catholic Church, has that been equally as sort of ingratiating to the woke brigade uh, as the as the Anglican Church. Well, in terms of coronavirus, certainly the Catholic Church was not much better, I don't think, than the Anglicans. Uh, you know, churches were closed, and in fact, certain churches closed even before the government guidelines said really? that they should. Yeah, some Catholic churches closed even before then. So there was a failure. I think people need the church more than ever during times of crisis. That's sort of its function, its earthly function, mm. is to provide comfort to people when they're most at their need. And the sort of evangelistic opportunities during coronavirus were huge, and the church, rather than opening their doors, shut them. 
and rather than welcoming people in and saying, you know, you're thinking more about death and, you know, an end of life and what happens afterwards, rather than saying, we, ca we have the answers to these questions, they said, oh, don't gather, don't, don't, don't come near us, you know, don't sneeze on us. If you come, you know, wear a face mask and stay six feet away. And it's completely the wrong message to send during times of crisis. Um, and I, I, I quite agree with your point that, um, you know, during times of crisis, that that's what they need. Um, but where were they? But this is the point. When we talk about moral guidance, uh, yes, you've actually said it. You know, basically, it's it's a time when we 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 are actually thinking about life and death and, and what might happen. That is actually the, that would have been their function uh, during the Second World War. Lots of I think erroneous, but lots of comparisons were made with the Second World War and the current situation. The churches absolutely were open during the blitz. Well, there was an enormous religious revival. Was uh, yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis and, and uh, Tolkien, people like that, were, were fascinated by it. And obviously, C.S. Lewis's fame as a, as a sort of secular preacher really grew during the, the Second World War. That was partly the American audience, but it was also true here. There was huge yeah. church attendance. And, it, okay, it might have been reasonable not to have services, but there was something about not having these physical places where you could just go by yourself. And I don't think the British in general are a deeply, you know, theological people, really. They're not intellectually engaged in that way. But that's not to say that at some level they don't sense that in times of you know important moments like mm. like birth and death you go to to a church for a mm. service and when things like this are happening maybe you just go and sit by yourself for a moment and just have that you know there's a there's a line of Robert Frost's about home is where when you go there they have to take you in yeah and it was a yeah. bit like that except that they didn't you know yeah. people would have gone or they would have wanted to no, Ang Anglican churches are closing at the fastest rate that they've ever done. You, something, do you know like ten, something like 10% of churches have closed within the last few years, 2,000 churches. And there's an, there is an argument being made that actually these churches should be allowed to close and that the, that the C of E should actually continue with what it's doing with these online services and keeping large, large places open, so cathedrals, abbeys and the larger venues to be open and people will have to commute for a greater distance in order to actually, you know, in order to... Um, have a density of population within these venues, letting the great old parish church, you know, shut and close down and be converted into what a yoga centre or whatever. And that's unfortunately, I think, what the elite leadership in the church are actually willing on. And that's that's going to hit local communities so hard because the local parish church, even if you're not religious, is a huge part of knowing who your neighbours are, yeah, yeah, interacting yeah. with yeah. them. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you might, I, where I live, I have a local church. Where is that? Where um, you? South London. Yeah, okay. So I have a local church and. Probably the only neighbours I know are the people who I know from church. Right. So I can know people sort of three or four mm. doors down mm. by face. I see them walking in and out, but I, I'll never speak to them. Mm. And I think th you'll see an increase in that. And then if people are commuting to church as well as work, I mean, it's, there's going to be no reprieve ever. You know, weekends, you're going to roads just be as busy as ever, city centres as busy as ever, because people are going to be going in to go to church if they are going to church at all. We'll probably see a decline there anyway. Um, but we need to leave these churches open, even if not for services, but for people to be able to go there and pray and have a community and they still have a social function. I mean, there clearly is a problem. I mean, the the, the um, Anglican church attendance has been, it's not just you know, a recent matter that's been going on for, for decades and its attendance is cratering, not in the big cathedrals. People like sort of the cathedral experience. They like pilgrimages. There, there are points of uh, of interest. Mm. Some of the big evangelical churches, um, often rather outside the Anglican mainstream, are doing very well. 
it's not that there, there isn't the energy there, but the, the basic attendance at churches is appalling. And part of what's happened in this crisis, I suspect, is that the bishops saw their opportunity and I think very mistakenly think that the idea is, as Rafe says, is we'll, we'll probably we'll go online, we're going to need to cut back our, our numbers, this, we'll, we won't let this crisis go to waste, and we'll try and use it to push our agenda. But they push an agenda that isn't going to help them. You can't take the church online that isn't church. Christianity is a very physical religion, like, like all religious services. You know, it's about being there with other people, having a community. You just, you just can't do that mm. online in the same way. Catholicism actually says that there are no sacraments online. It's impossible to engage in any of the sacraments online. It has to be. Cyber communion I've not yet heard of. But, yeah. um, yes. um, but certainly, you know, whether or not you're religious, the English parish church, I think, is a quintessential part, and I would think most people would regard it as such, a quintessential mm. part of English life and mm. of English society. The idea that you go to a village or a town and there you have the beautiful English you know, parish church with the flag mm. of St George going, mm. and you, you wander in mm. and you take solace. You know, and people are cultural Anglicans as much as they are religious Anglicans. And people, you know, may not go every Sunday, but certainly for, you know, for the hatch, match and dispatch, you know, for baptisms, weddings and funerals, the church is there. Because it is still the established church. And whilst it is the established church, it has to, by law provide those services to the nation and so I think this this dereliction of duty by the church leadership in turning their backs on these fundamental bits of Englishness which actually root a community to its and to its mm. uh, to its to the society that lives around it I, I think is, is, a, is a huge mistake what well, they I said they said something about we don't want to seem special you know if we kept the buildings open obviously we couldn't do services but if we kept the buildings open let clergy go in and hold services that would be like we were not with our um, everyone else, but they aren't with everyone else. They're the established church. They're supposed mm -hmm. to set themselves apart and and see themselves as essential. If they're not essential, as they effectively said, you know, we're not essential. We can close. Then, then what on earth are we doing? And I think yeah. we have to start to ask the question. It's a very difficult and, and question about whether establishment is any longer the, the right thing to do. And also, the hospitals remained open because the physical ailments people still need to see those tended to. But why are spiritual ailments now seen as lesser? And physical yes. ailments. Why can the church yeah. say, well, if you're, you know, you're troubled, you can't come to a church and speak to a priest, go to confession, go to communion, you know, the sort of things that people really need for their spiritual well-being. But hospitals, you know, of course, the physical well-being, of course, no one would say close the hospitals. Yeah. So why would the church be so happy yeah. to roll over and say, well, people don't really need that? Yeah. It, I think it reveals a lack of faith in themselves. Well, I'm going to ask this point because I mean, I think what, what, what Rafe says there, uh, uh, you all said, but Rafe uh, very vividly, uh, is that, you know, I am not, uh, you know, I, don't, I have not strong religious belief, but I would certainly call myself a cultural Christian. And when the fact is that the churches, and, and I, I know that a lot of people who are religious often don't like that. They think we're just sort of piggybacking on, on, on the fact, but to me they, they actually do um, give you context and you know I'm not so arrogant as to see that you know it, our society is based on the values of this and indeed you know they give a sense of continuity and tradition, all of the things we need at times. So in answer to, uh, to take your point on really Bell, I mean does this actually mean, because we hear oh the, the, the clergy or the they no longer believe in God. Right? It's, a, it's a bit of a caricature, but actually, is it mm. true? I think it definitely reveals a lack of faith, if not in God, then certainly in themselves and their ability to minister and be pastors to the people in their community. Um, you know, this is a real problem, I think, because it's been a recurrent theme for the past 50 years at least yeah. of 
now bishops see, and we see this with the Black Lives Matter thing, they see their function as being political or social, but not spiritual, not religious. They kind of, they've got, they've, they've, they've felt this need to rebrand themselves, mm. you know, almost like community leaders, so that when something like Black Lives Matter happens, they come out and they take the knee and they say, we're, we're in solidarity with you. But that's not their role. Mm. No, they're not. They're not Blairite politicians, but I, they seem to think they are. And they don't realise the movements that they're getting into bed with. Well, I want sort to talk of about actively Marxist, anti-Christian, anti-family. Yes, I want to talk about them in it just in a minute. But just to finish this point off, I mean, do you think? Do you think that uh, that they're that basically the people who are in charge of the church, like Ben was suggesting, actually don't really, actually don't believe in it really anymore? I think they don't believe in they they don't believe in the people that they are set over. They want a different church. It's a bit like sort of yeah. wanting to elect a different people. Yeah. And as I say, now that they've effectively really got no one going to church in tiny numbers, they can get away with it a bit. If their congregations actually came to church and saw in the way that I think my, even my eyes have been opened by this crisis to just how alienated I am from the leadership of the Church of England, yeah. uh, they won't be able to get away with it. So yeah. actually that's really the answer, is for people to just realise how bad it is. So maybe at least this crisis does that. I mean, I actually increasingly think the answer might be disestablishment, really? simply because mm. I think Establishment allows you to free ride on the church's existence a bit. Yeah. Not not you, but not just the cultural Christian thing. But you know, people can sort of think, well, it's there, and it's always going to be there, and the, church, the state sort of takes care of it. When that goes away, like in America, religiosity goes up because people realise that if they don't care for the church and attend and keep it going, it, it'll go away. So maybe that would increase church number, church attendance enough, so that the people who you know, so completely different to the people actually running it, uh, that it, it would change it around at the top again. On that point, I think if you had disestablishment, you would get a better class of vicar, because certain people who go into the church go into it for the perks, effectively, right. large vicarage, you know, the, the respect, the esteem, the church, knowing they'll never be out of a job, and those sorts of things, whereas true churchmen are the ones who go in taking a risk, making a mm. sacrifice, and I think you get a much better class of, of, of priest or vicar or, or a religious leader of any sort when it requires an enormous amount of sacrifice to do that. When you have the state, the whole machinery of the state behind this uh, sort of church which effectively doesn't do religion, um, it, you know, it's largely political and it is a political institution, you know, you have lords in the House of Lords who are bishops you know, that, that is something which, first of all, is, you know, questionable in terms of uh, the overlap between church and state uh, anyway. But in pluralistic times, when we're moving towards a multi-faith society, it also presents a very dangerous precedent because at what point do certain religious leaders turn around and say, why aren't we represented in the House of Lords? Why don't we have institutional, unelected, unaccountable power to push mm. our doctrines? Mm -hmm. So there, there are serious questions, I think, going forward about the establishment. Well, there of the are. Church. I mean, to just to make this point, there are. Are, are there not? Because this is something uh, you know that basically is, you could say, it's sort of outside the bounds of what we're talking about. But it's a fascinating point because, a long, quite a long time ago, Prince Charles said, "I want to be, you know, the defender of faith," and without wishing to be tasteless. Uh, the time is approaching where we are going to have to sort of face this. So if you disestablish the Church of England, what actually would a coronation look like in the end, Rafe? 
Well, I don't think the church is going to be disestablished, but I think what would... Should it be, do you my, think? Well, I, if I could put on my, my, my royal commentator hat or crown here, paper crown, if I can. Your crown. Um, <laughs> what, what, what I envisage happening, actually, in terms of the next coronation is that you will have the, the established coronation service uh, taking place in the Abbey. Now, that that's not, you know, uh, immutable. I mean, things have changed there. In 1953, for example, uh, a role for the moderator of the Church of Scotland was introduced into the church, which is also an established church in Scotland. Um, so what I think will happen in the next coronation is you'll have a standard Christian service in the Abbey, following which there'll be a multi-faith service in Westminster Hall, which was always where the coronation banquet took place and has long been out of use. But I think that that is going to be a, a way for the, you know, people of other faiths. And it's interesting, actually, there was a book written by Professor Ian Bradley, who was a, a professor of divinity, called God Save the Queen, in which he went out to other faiths and, and said, would you like the church to be disestablished and do you think that it's right for the sovereign to be head of the Church of England? And they said, yes, of course. And this is the leading Muslims and the chief rabbi and others who said, we'd rather have a person of faith rather than a person of no faith heading up. So I don't think there's any pressure to disestablish the church from other religions at all. But I do think, and I, as you know, problem in having a secondary service after the coronation service, which must maintain its current structure, as it has done for, well, nigh a thousand years, and in, but to incorporate other faiths, because we are living in a, in a society where there are other faiths, and so certainly a, a service to accommodate them separate too. I mean, I once spoke to the Maharaja of, of um, Darangad Rahalvad about this wonderful old scholar, and he said, as, you as, 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 a, as, a, as a Hindu <laughs> scholar who went up to Christchurch to study, to study um, Jewish studies as well, he said, any attempts to change the coronation service will be an act of vandalism akin to, to demolishing Stonehenge and the pyramids, which I think is great coming from a, a Hindu scholar. So mm. I think certainly they can, you can have a broad church whilst maintaining the established church. The thing is, uh, well, literally, yes. I think the, the thing is, is interesting, you say that the other faiths don't, they don't they're, not, they're not wanting this, they, they don't want the disestablishment of the church thing. It's just, it's the same old story that you covered in your book in a way, isn't it? Is that actually the people that they might be doing it to help or to curry favour with, don't care. It's just the people inside. I mean, maybe they are the ones who want to disestablish their own church. Maybe this is like, you know. They're very comfortable with the power I have. But yeah. I mean, the, the real point is that, you know, Rafe was talking about diversity of religions and faiths and a broad church. We no longer have a broad church in the Church of England, which the whole point of the Church of England is that it's a coalition with some very different versions of Christianity bubbling away under the surface in a very interesting tension. That's how it's worked over the centuries. Part of its success in sort of resolving our religious war and our religious differences from, you know, the Tudor period. Uh, and now we don't have that. We have all the three great bishops are evangelical, are very politicised, are really of the same point of view, which means that the Lord's spiritual in, in the Lords are also of that point of view, part of this political class, with very narrow views about Brexit, uh, very naive and catastrophic views about how to respond to climate change and all the rest of it, all those fashionable views of a certain elite kind. Mm -hmm. They're the only people at the top. Now, there are other views around. My, my rector, um, Marcus Walker, at St. Bartholomew the Great is a you know, terrific Anglo-Catholic uh, preacher, wonderful stuff. He's not going to be rising up the ranks anytime soon. That, that sort of voice, Gavin Ashenden, the former Queen's chaplain, you know, these sort of very, very, very bright, um, educated, brilliant men with, with mm. different points of view, they're not being heard at the top. We have a very, very narrow church, precisely because, as I say, it doesn't need to refer to anyone else, doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel the need anymore to accommodate different views at the time. Uh, Gavin Ashenden, of course, recently converted to Catholicism. Ah. So I think that's uh, when you have this uh, movement of the Church of England away from more traditional, not even traditional, just conservative, you know, 
what was normal 50 years ago for the Church of England. When you move away from that, those people find that the ground has moved from under their feet and they go, well, where do I go? Because yeah. this church no longer has a place for me in it. I have to say, I never thought about it until this crisis. I have to say, it's the first time I've thought to myself, it might mm. well be that I, the Church of England won't be a home I can stay in mm. much longer. Really? The last few months. That's yes. quite a big deal to come to that yes. conclusion. Well, we've seen this for years, though, haven't we? What we've seen is, is those churches that actually have a more small-c conservative position or that stay true to their founding principles and values and the tenets of their faith, those are the ones that are growing. So you see the evangelical church movement. Mm. You see the orthodox church growing. You see the Islamic mm. faith growing. Why? Because they provide the structure and the discipline mm. and the values, and they stick true to, they stay true to the traditions of the faith. And that's what people seek. And, and you know, the Anglican church is doing just the opposite, and that's why you're seeing falling numbers. I think, uh, speaking of numbers, I think London church attendance has actually gone up considerably, but it is largely from ethnic minority oh, groups, like the big, as you say, evangelical churches. I can think of where I live in Woolwich. Um, I don't know what the church numbers are for the, for, the, for the local C of E church, but there are big audiences in the, in the what once were cinemas, yeah. you know, for example. And, and obviously you've got uh, Polish Catholic people in London, you've got you know, African Christians and obviously Muslims. Um, I just want to go on a bit, bit from this. It's a bad picture, therefore, but it seems to have been made worse by the church's reaction to what's happened in the past, say, what, six weeks, two months? Um, and I, I was very struck, you know, you, might have, you must have seen it this week. I think it was Sheffield Cathedral are disbanding their choir I think they rode back a bit on it. You can put me right up. I think they rode back. But basically because uh, they felt that this music didn't speak to their community anymore. But it was, this all felt like code for basically diversity. I mean, when you hear something like that, it, it is a point. So, so what are you going to do? Not have any more choral sacred music? What? Well, I think it's actually emblematic of what happens when you give in to the mob. When you say, okay, we need to get rid of things that aren't woke enough, which are problematic, which don't fit with the new values that we now espouse, you have to take every single hymn, review it, and if none of them fit the, you know, the, the new values we have, well, you just get rid of the choir altogether because, because they can't sing anything. Yeah, yeah. What, what can they sing which will align with the, you know, the values that this mob have? But I think one of the reasons that the Church of England gives in is because they do sense a degree of hypocrisy looking back you know it's uh, iconoclasm is typically something which we relate to the protestant reformation in this country 97 percent of english religious art was destroyed during the reformation and immediately afterwards in the english civil war for example so they have to you know rather than owning up to that legacy yes. and saying oh that was that was wrong they have to say when these people do it they're right as well you know when these people want to do the exact same thing and recast society in their image well, we can't complain, we have to go along with it. And when, when we do it, it's woke and brilliant and we're right. And, you know, we can't admit that we were ever wrong. Do you think, you know, when the Archbishop of Canterbury, who seems to have become a bit of a, of a, of a hate figure, actually, uh, because of his reaction about saying, you know, we, we should look at all the statues in Canterbury Cathedral, we should revise. In other words, he's doing a kind of religious version of what Sadiq Khan has said in London. Uh, what does that actually mean in practical terms? First of all, do you know, can he do that? I mean, this is the point, the point is always being made now. We are the custodians, aren't we, of this stuff? We are, you know, whatever it is, in whatever context, does one archbishop have the power just to actually start removing statues? 
Well, statues or choirs. I mean, and, and the, the English choral music is one of the great jewels of Western civilization. Yeah, For some absolutely. reason, the, the Anglican Church has been able to preserve the, the, the beauty of its choral tradition far better than the Catholics do. I mean, the best we can do is Vespers, but it's a pale imitation of, of, of proper English choral music. And so to do away with the, the, the great choirs of England, which are celebrated all over the world, is, in my view, a, an act of cultural vandalism. Yes. It's, it's, it's akin to knocking down a cathedral, actually. What is a cathedral if it's not for the people and the sounds and the, and the worship that takes place within its walls? Yeah, and, and right, this crisis has caused a massive... Um, crisis for the choral tradition because of the whole problem around choirs being one of the most dangerous things to do. So they've been oh, banned and I they can't go back. So much as yeah. people talk about theatres, and of course that's another case, the English choral tradition is, is in terrible danger right now, not just about one choir, the entire thing, because it's shut down. You know, there's hardly anywhere it can be done. Few brave churches that are trying to work out sort of online version. It's very, very difficult. As Rafe says, it's an extraordinary thing. People all around the world want to listen to King's College Chapel on Christmas Eve because it's, you know, it's like yes, the most magical yes. thing. Go and listen to Evensong in a great cathedral. It's a breathtaking experience. But that's all going away because they can't turn up and perform. And if the church was actually interested in real crises, they would be addressing that and realising that that was a serious problem. But instead, they're mucking around with statues. and They don't seem to care. And they seem to think mm, they can just, mm. that'll all be old-fashioned. It doesn't matter. We'll go online. They, they don't seem to be aware of the real problems that have suddenly arisen this year that they should be really dealing with. And, and the church is very preoccupied with the idea of, oh, are choirs too dangerous, you know, mm. COVID and whatnot. What, and yet, what and yet do you mean by that? What, 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 in the sense that they're too white? Or no, no, too dangerous in the sense of, you know, because of coronavirus oh, and spreading and people yeah, gathering yeah. very close to each we other and singing and projecting, yeah. uh, you know, whatever. Um, but they still support Black Lives Matter. They haven't come out and said Black Lives Matter chanting in the streets, huddled together as masses, is dangerous and wrong. No, 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 they, no, they, they don't no. seem to care about that. They only care about, seemingly, what the choir actually is, which is worship. And I think they feel very uncomfortable about the idea of worship. You know, worship, oh no, we can't have that. That's, that's a bit too much like religion. What we do now is politics. And as Rafe, you know, sort of pointed out earlier, you know, that the English have always preserved a lot of things which came from English Christianity, which previously would have been Catholicism before the Reformation, but a lot of that will have been preserved in the Anglican Church later on. Uh, and, and Catholicism in this country is largely an import. It is something from Europe which has returned Polish immigration and um, Portuguese and Spanish and French and people coming over, they bring their form of Catholicism with them. Mm. So that English Christianity isn't as present in Catholicism as you might expect it to be in this country. I mean, it, it exists in dribs and drabs here and there, but the real tradition of English Christianity is preserved in the Anglican Church, and that's why the Anglican Church needs to continue to preserve it, yeah. um, you know, because it's all well and good saying, oh, disestablish the church and get rid of it because they don't do their job anymore, but they have an enormous wealth which we need to make sure isn't destroyed in the process. Do you think that there is the chance, uh, you mentioned theatres there, uh, well, there's a theme that's sort of been emerging the past month or so, that you're hearing that on the one hand you've got what has happened because of COVID, and it's almost like a lot of institutions are taking the opportunity to, as they put it, reset you know, so I'm pretty sure that the arts after this, for example, will be drenched even more in identity politics, right? That we, it'll just be, it will transform, I think, what we see. Could it be the church are doing this too? That they're actually looking at things saying, well, actually, this is the chance for us to, you know, 
take away things that maybe are too white and western and indeed for that matter maybe we don't need core music anymore maybe the time has come for us to i don't know be doing different forms well we had the archbishop of canterbury saying that um, jesus shouldn't be portrayed as white any longer you know despite yes. the fact that whatever culture you go to yes. jesus is always portrayed <laughs> as yes. in the local as a, as a local person and indeed of course medieval painters would paint jesus in medieval clothing as well you know, yes, yes. these are symbols rather than actual depictions yeah, yeah. And if, you, if you go to so churches in norway you'll find depictions of christ with one eye closed because odin of course was was blind oh, in one eye or, or was it in, well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's crazy really you know this is a cultural thing that happens you go to a community they have their established norms and you represent god in the established way so that people can relate to it and the yes. whole point is that people relate to it and that's been taken away entirely. So well, he has the, to be distant. Yeah, the new Archbishop of York has, has come out and said that he's, he's in fact black. Jesus is, is black. And uh, there's a sort of very telling choice in the age of Black Lives Matter. Whereas, I mean, if you want to say anything, then it would be reasonable to say that he's Jewish, of course. But yeah, uh, yeah. That, that isn't the, the favoured group at the moment. So he's being depicted, again, in, in ways that suit a particular elite narrative and a sort of revolutionary narrative and, and not and not the one of the sort of the traditions that we actually have. I think the easiest way to understand what's happening in the church right now and in its leadership is to re remember the old the old phrase that the Church of England was the Tory party at prayer yeah, exactly. and yeah. then it then became for quite a long time yeah. and you know until the last 20 years the Lib Dem party at prayer and it's now very much the Corbynista party at prayer <laughs> if not the if not Black Lives Matter at prayer that's the transformation is and once you yeah. think of it in those terms I think yeah. you can understand how it's changed culturally yeah. but not in the pews you know it's, it's said, daily yeah. mail readers and telegraph readers and, and sun mm. readers and um, with a bunch of Guardian readers preaching at them. As I said at the beginning, that's what we have now. We have the, the elite who are public school educated, and very much of the Cameronian set, and cut off from reality. The clergy tend to be very left-leaning, and the laity, of course, are, are right-leaning. So you have these three tiers in the church, and it's not sustainable. Uh, just to finish off, Mark, you obviously have written the book along the long march, uh, how the left won the culture war, and what to do about it. Uh, obviously, the church must feature in this book, no? Yes. And, and, and how is it being played out now? <laughs> things have only accelerated. So when I wrote the book, I was complaining as sort of examples of sort of woke culture coming into things that shouldn't be bothered with such things, uh, how the church earlier this year came out and said, uh, for one thing, that they were going to go carbon neutral by 2030, which is 15 years faster than anyone thought was sensible. So that was a, a sign of their new priorities. And then Justin Welby came out and said, well, the entire church is deeply uh, institutionally racist. Mm. Uh, th this was well before the Black Lives Matter thing, so just him yes. sort of getting ahead of that, if you, if you like. Uh, so that would have been bad enough. And now all of this on top mm. of it, and you know, you said, you said about the, the Sheffield uh, mm. Cathedral Choir, is apparently being shut down and completely replaced. It seems to have happened in a very sort of shabby and sort of secretive manner. But also uh, very near us, we're, we're in Westminster while we're recording this, St Margaret's, which is you know yes. the parish church of Westminster. That's no longer going to have Sunday services. It was announced a few weeks ago. Whatever? Ever? No, not going to have a Sunday this service. This was a very famous church. Uh, people would know it without knowing it. It's where Churchill and Milton both got married. Yes, when, you, when, you, yes <laughs> when you come into Parliament Square, uh, right next to Westminster Abbey, there is a church there. and it, In fact, it was a high society church for a long time, wasn't mm. it? And, 
But why, what is the reasoning for that? They just can't support it. Like you say, they're using the crisis to do things that they've wanted to do for a long time. Well, and they don't like the church that they have. And they also can't fill it with the numbers, with their approach to the church. They're not getting in the numbers. So they're, they're downsizing and kicking out the bits they don't like. Well, of course, St. Margaret's is about 900 years old. So it would originally have been a Catholic church. If they don't feel they can support it anymore, I'm sure the, the <laughs> Westminster Cathedral, about a stone's throw down the road, would be happy to take it under its wing and build a bustling community there. And, you know, if, if they don't want it, you know, give it away. Well, I do sense a sort of <laughs> rivalry emerging, <laughs> not to say church wars. Mm. But it is remarkable, though, I have to say, though, with all this notion about institutional racism and the, uh, mm. the goal of the Archbishop of Canterbury to say that we're all racist, that the church is racist, that we have this idea of, forget original sin, of collective national sin. And, of course, you think, look, where, is the, where are the religious foundations of, of, these, of these ideas when you have, you know, the sins of the father must not be visited on the son? Mm. This whole concept, you know. Well, indeed, uh, truth and reconciliation, you know. Look at what Archbishop Tutu did in South Africa. And this idea of forgiveness in, uh, as well as repentance, this whole notion, basically, of moving on and forgetting, forgetting what may have happened in the past, whether or not there's any, any, any relevance or, or justice in what people are claiming. This idea of basically trying to hold acts of the past over a contemporary society, I think, is wholly irreligious. Yes. Well, look, gentlemen, thanks very, very much for today and talking about it. Uh, it, it is extraordinary. We, uh, on this channel, we seem to be going through the institutions one by one, uh, but quite legitimately, I think, uh, because uh, everything is at a very, I would say, a sort of a, a, a really on a knife edge, actually. Uh, but thank you very much, Ben, Mark, and Rafe. Uh, that's it for this week on counterculture uh see you next time but in the meantime uh do remember our new save our statues campaign uh which we launched a couple of weeks ago uh it's doing very well we're so encouraged by the number of people who are signing up uh so please do join them won't you saveourstatues.org.uk thank you very much see you next time <laughs>